Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blu-ray Boutique. I'm your co-host, Rosalie Lewis. And I'm your other co-host, Tim Rosenberger. And today we are doing our October episode, which naturally makes sense then to do some sort of horror or horror-adjacent movies. And for this round, we've decided to do international horror, specifically European horror. So we picked two movies, and they are Eyes Without a Face, which is French from 1960, and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which is Italian, and it's from 1970. So I know I had seen both of these movies before, and these were my picks. Uh, So, Tim, I've unwittingly thrust you into the mix of these interesting horror movies. Uh, Had you seen either of these before? No, I hadn't seen any of the stuff. I hadn't... I knew nothing, almost nothing about any of them. So um, it was interesting going into them. They were very different from what I expect. Um, And I'm sure we'll get more into this as we talk about each one. But they were definitely um, different kinds of horror than we talked about last year. They weren't maybe as traditional horror, at least in the Hollywood sense of it. Very true. So before we get into these specific movies, I am curious to just know kind of your background with horror movies in general, because I know for me, I didn't grow up watching, well, much, much movies at all. And then I was very afraid to start watching horror movies initially. And I was, you know, kind of a scaredy cat about it. And then I slowly immersed myself. And now I consider myself to be a fan of the genre overall, though not like a hardcore fan. So these two movies came along where I would say I was more in my, like, advanced uh, viewing of horror movies. I had seen, you know, obviously stuff like Scream and the various slasher films and a lot of American films. And then I'd seen some, you know, classic Hollywood Universal Monsters type of stuff before I saw both of these. But what's your background with horror? I like horror. It is never probably going to be my favorite genre or anything. I, I do tend to, I don't know when, I mean, I would have watched stuff as a kid and certain stuff and I mean some early introductions to classic monsters like the Frankenstein monster or whatever were been through stuff like Young Frankenstein actually um, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid seeing Young Frankenstein and then watching parts of uh, the Bela Lugosi Dracula film at somebody's house and I kept and she was older and stuff and I kept asking her if uh, this one was supposed to be funny and she said no it's not supposed to be funny but uh you know as i've gotten older you know, again um i tend to lean towards older stuff like classic hollywood stuff like the frankenstein stuff and all that but i do like newer stuff too some of it can be the newer stuff can be a bit too bleak for my taste sure like i've seen stuff like you know let the right let the right one in and stuff but it's just it's signs that get so just like which are interesting and stuff and i like but they're not stuff i would watch all the time just because they're so dark they can be kind of depressing for me put me into bad head spaces and stuff but no i enjoy them and i mean i mean how one of my favorite directors is guillermo del toro who deals a lot in horror though i think I mean, it's interesting. I think, and this might go in, in our discussion a little bit. Sometimes it's interesting. What would you define as a horror film? Right. And That's what don't? Question. Yeah, your question about what kind of qualifies as horror is one that I feel like comes up a lot. And for me, it's partially atmosphere. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily a movie that scares me, but it's a, a movie that's. It has a certain atmosphere, certain perspective where it's either voyeuristic in some way, or it's having us maybe empathize or be in the mind of somebody who has some evil tendency or it's playing off of a psychological fear that a lot of people have. Like it's exploring these darker themes, but in a way that is at enough of a remove that it feels safe to explore them, or at least that's kind of my interpretation or what I get out of it. And so these two movies, and we'll definitely obviously dive into the specifics in a, a few minutes, but these two movies definitely do have that horror atmosphere for me of like a a sense of foreboding or dread. And even though there's elements that some people might out of context, say are campy, I think within the context of the movies, they're effective. So I guess that that would be my take on what horror kind of means to me. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't have a great definition of what it would be. I just kind of know if I see a movie, if I would classify it as horror or not, but I really couldn't define like, these are the things it needs to have Mm -hmm. or whatever. So we'll start off with the first one chronologically, and that is Eyes Without a Face, 
not to be confused with the Billy Idol song of the same name, which I do love. But this one came out in 1960, and like we mentioned, it's a French film, and it was directed by Georges Franju, who had previously made primarily uh, documentaries, and his documentaries had dark subjects as well. One was set in a slaughterhouse, and he was kind of exposing the horrors of that. Another one took place at a hospital for, I believe, war veterans. And, you know, he used the medium of film to explore these dark territories, even in a nonfiction setting. So when it came to adapting this book called Eyes Without a Face, he took it and ran with it. And he actually co-wrote the script for the movie as well. And basically the plot is about a plastic surgeon who... His daughter has had a horrible accident and, you know, the father actually was driving the car at the time. Her mother died and she um, had her face horribly damaged. And so the father is guilt ridden and he wants to use his, you know, scientific or medical knowledge to try to help his daughter. So he goes about trying to perform a face transplant on her. But of course, not a lot of people out there just willingly giving up their faces. So um, he enlists the help of a woman who basically abducts women that look similar enough to the daughter, and then they perform surgeries to remove the face and put it on the daughter. And this happens several different times, several different iterations, sometimes in graphic detail. But uh, as much as I'm describing, and it sounds horrific, and it is, but it's also a really beautiful film, if I can say that. Like, the way that it's shot is very... Um, dreamlike at times, very surreal, and also reminded me a little bit of like German Expressionism. I would agree with you. I think it's tragically beautiful. And yeah, it is dreamlike at certain points. Like one point when the daughter is, uh, Christine is, anytime she's kind of walking by herself and there's no dialogue and she's walking through the house or the estate or whatever you want to call it. And there's this music, a uh, combination with the music that they're using, which I love. way they shoot it and the way she's moving and with because she wears a mask for most of the film and the mask she's wearing and the clothes she's wearing it almost was like it just almost reminded me like it was like i was watching like a music box or something mm-hmm. it was just this it was just this great interesting feeling and stuff mixed with the uh, context of the movie of this you know i don't know how it, 20 something or early 30 something woman who you know, I said something tragic happened to her, and she's presumed dead by events that are explained early in the movie, and she can't see her fiancé anymore because he thinks she's dead and stuff, and she's just alone, and she doesn't know how much she even wants to live anymore, but her dad wants to try to fix things because of guilt and stuff. But just this 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 pain that she's going through is so tragic, and, and, just, and you just really, really, really feel for her and want to almost just reach into the screen and help her yourself and um, give her the support she's not really getting from her dad, who's just more obsessed with fixing stuff than supporting her. But at the same time, th- through that tragedy, again, it is somehow strangely, like like we said, strangely beautiful and stuff. It's this weird combination that's really um, intriguing. There's also a lot of really beautiful sort of nature scenes. Um, you mentioned the scenes where she's walking around the estate, and we should say this takes place on the outside of Paris, and in this beautiful gothic mansion surrounded by grounds that have trees and meadows and things like that. And she has, well, they have a lot of dogs there. Mm -hmm. And we come to assume, slash it's implied, that bad things are happening to the dogs in a medical way as well. But she sees the dogs as her companions, and so she goes down and, you know, talks to them and, and gives them attention and you know, she she seems to really have a connection with nature. And it's interesting because, you know, when she's down there with the dogs, they, they don't care about her appearance, which actually I think that's inaccurate because I know dogs that go crazy if you put a hat on. But 
nonetheless, they accept her for who she is, and she just seems like she's most at peace when she's either outside walking in nature or when she's with the animals. And I think that gets to something fundamental about kind of like who we are in our most primal state without all the niceties, without all the, you know, like human vanity and all of that. Yeah, because there is something just kind of not right about the approach that the, the, the dad and the, I guess, his secretary or his helper or whatever. They're trying to, like, like fix the daughter, but she doesn't really need, like, fixing. Like I said, she just kind of mm-hmm. needs, like, support and love and stuff to help get through this terrible tragedy. And yes, it's horrible, and obviously it's not easy for people who have been scarred in that extent of a way. But at the same time, it's not. He's approaching it more from a... Instead of a let's support you from a let's make you normal again type thing, mm-hmm. which isn't right. Yeah, it's not like it's an affirming surgery. It's more being thrust upon her. And she talks about how, you know, she's scared to wear this mask that her dad has created for her. The, the mask scares her. It doesn't make her feel like herself. They've taken down all the mirrors in the house that see what she really looks like. So there's real, real sense of dysphoria, which... I know this probably wasn't on anyone's mind at the time this was made, at least not the filmmakers, but I I think it's a a very interesting lens to view it through now to think about people that have body dysmorphia or body, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, potentially people that are trans and, you know, don't connect with the physical form that they find themselves in. And so that's another lens through which you could see this movie. And that's one of the things I love about it, right? Is it's, you can take it at face value and it's just a, a creepy, but beautiful story of tragedy and mad science but it's also it has that almost fairy tale feel or mm. like it, it feels like it has room for more possibilities or more interpretations you mentioned like the body dysmorphia thing one person i follow on twitter she you know talks about how uh, while she isn't comfortable with it i think one way she tries to she's she tries to cope with her body dysmorphic disorder is by posting pictures of herself and all that stuff to kind of be better with that and seeing herself and stuff and then you have the woman in this who can't even i think process you know really what's happened to her because she can't even really look at herself Mm-hmm. and stuff so she can't i don't think she's ever really dealt with what's happened in any sort of significant way i think you know her dad won't even let her go through all that stuff really and that makes her situation even worse i think her depression worse and just kind of you know he's doing it to help her but it's really just making her want to die i think even more because she can't she can't process her feelings properly right and is it really to help her or is it to help him right because yeah. he's using his experiments to obviously nobody knows the truth but like he's using these experiments to talk in big forums about oh we're making these advances in science and we're doing these heterograph surgeries and you know the people that attend his lectures assume that he's getting like donated bodies or or things like that which clearly is not the case but he's definitely like setting himself up to profit from it if it does become successful and it's again to absolve himself of the events that led to her mother's death as well as her being disfigured. And she says at one point to Edna that even when he's in the car, he has to be in control. So we get these hints that he had this kind of toxic personality even before this event happened. I want to talk about Edna for a minute because she's a very interesting character. So we mentioned her as being kind of like the secretary, but she also kind of talks to Christine and tries to comfort her and encourage her and at the same time we also see her at the very beginning of the movie disposing of a body that you know they they took the face from and she puts this girl in the river and there's lots of really interesting shots of her driving the car and you see her kind of in close-up you see this pearl necklace that she wears which covers her scars but i love the way that that is shot because she we normally see in movies we see women who are um, being, you know, preyed upon, but we don't often see a woman who is doing the predatory behavior. And this was an example of that where she's, she's driving around town. She's looking for single girls. She, you know, befriends women that, you know, are by themselves and she offers them tickets to the the theater and, Oh, I found you a place to live. You know, she's kind of going through all these extremely enabling (laughs) things that are really disturbing and normally we would see that kind of stuff perpetrated by a man but 
in this case, it's a woman who's who's assisting the man. I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting kind of role reversal. Speaking of, you know, these movies being maybe a diff- bit different than what you might expect, it does have the main theme of the movie is kind of different than what you would expect because it's kind of yeah. almost quirky, almost upbeat type Yeah, I would music. say it's jaunty, right? It kind of sounds like a carnival at times. Yeah, and it's just different. It gives it, a, it, it gives the whole kind of movie kind of a strange flavor and stuff, but it totally works, even with the yeah. kind of more beautiful, sad music that we mentioned earlier with the daughter and stuff. It just kind of, it, it kind of just works with this kind of weirdish stuff that they're doing and the kind of creepy vibe of it. It never makes it feel too silly or anything like that. It really, it still works with the more kind of horrific elements of the movie and the score we should say is done by uh, maurice jar who has done you know many many film scores including things like lawrence of arabia all all the way up through fatal attraction and ghost and he did um somewhere my love uh which was you know the the theme from ghost as well Uh, so yeah very very well known (laughs) very good at his job oh come on who remembers the 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 music from lawrence of arabia i mean people forget that stuff all the time i mean (laughs) yeah uh, definitely worth it i actually i couldn't find it on spotify but after i'd watched eyes without a face i went on youtube just to listen to the music because i loved it so much i was like i kind of like this i want to have this on in the background no yeah i know it is really great and just unique and all that well, I like the movie and stuff, and I like the story of the daughter the most. I was a bit disappointed because I felt like maybe there was a bit of missed potential with that. Maybe, like, they could have done more with her story, and then there's always a kind of... Even though we kind of know the whodunit of it, there's a kind of mystery with, the tech, with detectives and the, a little bit of the boyfriend trying to figure out maybe if there's something odd going on with this weird doctor and stuff. And I felt like some of those elements maybe weren't um, used to the best of their potential in terms of story and intrigue and just in terms of emotional pathos with the daughter yeah you know i was reflecting on the way this movie unfolds and there's not a clear protagonist i mean you could say it's the daughter but we don't spend all of our time with her and we don't see everything from her perspective we're kind of getting like that you know omnipotent narrator or omniscient narrator um feel where we can kind of see all the different pieces and I was debating whether I feel like I would rather have it be a whodunit or, you know, something a little more traditional procedural style or the way that it is. I feel like it's it's really effective as it is, even though there are some slow parts or some parts that feel kind of tacked on, like the, the detective pieces are a little bit tacked on. But I don't know, I feel like you would lose a lot of the atmosphere mm-hmm. if it spent more, more time on that part of the story. Well, I think... The problem, if you tried to do it totally through like the cop's point of view, is you would lose the stuff with the daughter, which I think is kind of the heart of the film, mm-hmm. and that would be tragic to to lose. It would be more like a big reveal and stuff and a shock moment, almost like a psycho, right. psycho or Thane or a fan of the opera type Thane or whatever, and I think that would be wrong. Because I especially say, considering her story, I think it's more appropriate to sympathize with her instead of kind of maybe exploiting something like that for shock and terror or whatever. Right, and if you told it from the fiancé's point of view, again, you lose all of the, the internal stuff that's going on inside that house. So the only thing I could think of that maybe they could do a little bit more of is, is spend more time in the the mindset of the different victims that get lured to the mansion. And we do get a little bit of that, but it doesn't take us all the way down the rabbit hole with, with mm. their view. There's a lot of really great visuals in this, and one of my favorite kind of backdrops for said visuals is the graveyard and the crypt. So we mentioned at the beginning of the the movie, they have it set up so that they have one of these bodies that they're disposing of kind of stand in for Christine so that everybody just says, oh, you know, this is Christine that has died, and they can pretend that she's dead to then keep her in the mansion and keep her all cooped up. Well, so they have this family crypt where the mother is also, and they then go back to the crypt one time in the middle of the night. And I have to say, that's one of the creepiest, most like, I don't know why, but it was oddly more upsetting to me than like the scene of them actually removing the face was the scene of them just throwing a body on top of another one inside of the (laughs) crypt. It's really unsettling. What did we think of Edith Scobb? Because I think that's hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Who plays Christine? Who, uh, f- 
for most of the movie, she's wearing that mask and really, you know, this kind of immobile mask. And we only, well, we see eyes without a face. Mm-hmm. And one, I, I don't know the casting process for this movie, but I almost, unless I knew, like, had her specifically in mind or something, I cannot, I almost just imagine them looking at so many French act- actresses to find somebody who had really unique eyes, which mm-hmm. she does. She has these huge, I mean, beautiful eyes that are just kind of amazing without the mask. And then even with the mask, they're so expressive. And I was really kind of uh, impressed by, she's not particularly showy or anything, but just with you know, body language and with her eyes, she able is able to emote everything that she could possibly want, even though you can't see really anything except for her eyes and possibly a little bit of her eyebrows or something. And it's really kind of, I think, a subtle but amazing performance from her. Yeah, I love her performance. And it reminded me in some ways, and and I would say this maybe for the whole movie, but it reminded me in some ways of like a silent film actor because mm-hmm. they do have to do so much with the eyes. And she had been in a previous movie with um, Franju. I don't know how big of a role because I haven't seen it, but his movie um, Head Against the Wall she was in that as well. So she, you know, clearly had worked with him before and, and maybe he had her in mind already when he decided to take on this project. I'm not sure. But yeah, I thought she was fantastic because she is very sympathetic when she could just kind of come off as this freak, but she comes off as somebody who's very troubled, but really empathetic. And, you know, we can kind of relate to her and empathize with her just from seeing those eyes and seeing the, the movements of her body and you know she just the way she moves across the floor when she has like the white gown on it yeah. it's just gonna stick in my mind like yeah I, it, yeah it's very like trance like and like you said i think you said kind of like a dance and mm-hmm. it's just yeah it's very hard to kind of just take your i mean if the whole movie was just her walking through the house or something yeah. i probably wouldn't complain it's just it's very uh interesting and she's almost like, I mean, we mentioned the character before a little bit, the intro, but he's she's almost kind of like a Frankenstein monster type mm-hmm. thing. This this character who maybe outwardly is is horrific, quote unquote, looking, but has a big heart and is you know maybe isn't entirely innocent in some stuff that she's doing or is allowing to happen, but is ultimately kind of an innocent who's being put into bad situations. And just kind of, like I said before, just kind of needs support and love. It isn't getting it, and instead just finds tragedy everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I guess, how much of a horror film would you call this? Because I know, I think the director I saw on IMDb, so I don't know how true this is, but he said he didn't really consider it a horror movie, but I think he said he considered it just a movie about anguish, which I really agree with. Because I saw it more as kind of a mystery psychological character piece with some horrific and particularly graphic, especially for 1960 scenes in it. But I didn't really think of it as terribly horror-esque. But what do you think about that? I don't necessarily agree. I mean, I do think that it's a a movie about anguish, but that's a topic that I think a lot of horror films uh, grapple with. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, more recently, The Babadook, as a film that people had the same debate about, oh, is it is it a horror movie or is it just a, a drama with some supernatural elements? You know, I mean, you can you can kind of like bandy about the different definitions, but I think it's still exploring something horrific or sad through the lens of horror. I mean, I would mm-hmm. say it's a body horror because you know you have these very graphic scenes and not just the scene of the the surgery itself, but then the the still images that flash on the screen as her body rejects. That's so sad. You know, and it's, it gets worse and worse. So in some ways it's also a movie about our own decay and the inevitability, I think of, of us not being able to keep that youthful visage forever. So Mm -hmm. I think it's exploring those themes, but it's using these really stark Mm. images. La, 
Okay, so our next and final film is uh, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Um, it's from 1970, so 10 years after the last one we talked about, this one being in color. Um, it is the first uh, solo feature film of Dario Argento, who you will probably know from stuff like Suspiria. He uh, wrote the script. It was, it's uh, from what I've read, an unofficial adaption of a, a novel uh, called The Scre- Screaming Mimi, uh, written by Frederick Brown, I believe. And it is a giallo film, which um, this film did not create that genre, but I believe it did popularize it, especially in France, for, ooh, I think about five or so years. It was really popular for, like, 1970 to 75 or something like that. And I misspoke before, not uh, popular in France, but popular in Italy, because it is an Italian film. Giallo is kind of, I guess, a term that uh, can be used to describe mystery fiction and thrillers. And I think that was used for, like, kind of almost uh, pulpy... The cheaply made paperbacks back in the day in Italy. Anyway, the plot for the film is a, I think, writer question mark. I was kind of slightly confused. I think he's a writer. <laughs> they don't really talk about it a lot in the movie. Right. Uh, a guy uh, named Sam, who's an American, um, who's spending time in Italy with, I guess it's his, well, no, I guess not, I guess, with his uh, girlfriend, uh, Julia witnesses uh, an attempted murder in an art museum he isn't able to stop the possible killer but um he is able to uh save the woman before she um gets too horribly injured and uh the police start investigating and uh, he gets kind of wrapped up in the mystery almost accidentally he was on his way out of italy with his girlfriend but the police initially the inspector initially kind of blackmails him to help him out as a witness and eventually he just kind of gets wrapped up in the mystery um and tries to do some amateur detective work and gets um and maybe a little bit over his head in certain spots as he tries to unravel what's you know who the killer is and there's something about the murder that he's witnessed that isn't quite right that he can't quite put his finger on he's trying to figure out what that is because he thinks he and the inspector think it's something key to solving the mystery there's the woman who was injured who is the wife of i guess the art gallery that she was injured in he's a bit suspicious but uh yeah there's some intrigue there's uh, some assassins and uh, some weird artwork and just a lot of twists and turns that kind of get wrapped up in a nice little way at the end so i knew uh like i said at the beginning, i knew really nothing about this film going into it i thought it would be more not that i've seen this film either but i know a little bit of it be more of a straight horror film like a, maybe a, a suspiria or something and be not that this film isn't graphic in certain spots but more graphic like that and more directly horror based but it's more there are horror elements i think mixed with a lot of mystery and thriller elements and i found that very intriguing because I wasn't really expecting more of a mystery thriller type film and stuff. And I got kind of wrapped up in this kind of genre, which I hadn't really experienced before. I guess, what was your, I mean, first experience with the movie? And did you have kind of a similar, did you know what you were getting into with it? Or were you surprised like me? Or what was your reaction to it? Yeah, so I had seen a few Giallo movies before this. And Giallo naturally appeals to me because in some ways it's like a horror riff on film noir it's usually about a person who is either wrongfully accused or you know is somehow sucked into an investigation there's usually a whodunit involved there's quite often very beautiful women and there are certain things that recur over and over again with giallos you see a lot of killers wearing black gloves or black trench coats or black hats or disguises or wigs there's a lot of that going on the titles are usually very evocative, so a lot of them have a number in the title, a, a bird, uh, an animal, <laughs> or a color, or all of the above. And and, uh, it sh- and it should be mentioned that this was the first of a trilogy of, of I guess they call it the Animal Trilogy or something, yeah. where they all have all Jala films with an animal in the title. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I can't say I'm an expert on it at all, but I love what I've seen, and I had seen a couple of Dario Argento's other movies. I'd seen Deep Red, which I love, and I'd seen Suspiria, which is a much different film, a much more sort of supernatural element to it. This one, like you said, is much more straightforward, and I don't know if that's because it was earlier and they were sort of still developing and riffing on it, or if maybe I watched more early Giallo, if they would be more along these lines. But in any case, yeah, I loved the intrigue. I loved 
that it makes you kind of second guess like who who you suspect and who you believe and is there an unreliable narrator or not and again this is a movie with a ton of atmosphere you do have to adjust a little bit to the fact that there's you know dubbing because uh giallo films are filmed in in italian but they dub it in english so the, the mouths don't always match up to what's being said on screen, and, and, and there's no subtitles. And it should be said, because the uh, before we forget, the first film, uh, um, I don't want to forget, the um, Eyes Without a Face, that's available through Criterion. And this one, I believe, is available through Arrow. Um, I, um, does that have a U.S. release as well? I or believe so, yeah. Okay. I've definitely seen it in stores in the U.S. I don't know if that was the region-free version or not, but I'm pretty sure it's available in, in the U.S. as well. Anyway, I think in that they do have the Italian version, of which what I was reading, because initially when I watched I found it on YouTube and there was the English dub, and I was like, oh, I don't want to watch the English dub, I want to watch the Italian language version. And I think I was reading it, it's like, I think even the Italian version of it, I think they still dub it or something. They like, do, yep. So it's like either way it's dubbed it's with martial stuff. martial arts film where you're going to see dubbing either way. So, and some people I think said they even preferred the English dub of it, so I just kind of went with it and stuff. So it's interesting. It's almost like, um, I think some, maybe I'm wondering if it's similar to the way that I think Chinese films kind of work where they'll, because there's so many different kind of languages in China and dialects and stuff, they will just, I think they even still do this. to a certain extent. They will shoot the stuff without sound and then dub it, dub it over later in various languages and stuff. So there's almost no true version of it and stuff. But I'd be interested to hear the Italian version of it. But anyway, the, the Arrow version does have the Italian language version and the English language version. But anyway, go ahead. Interesting. I'll have to I'll have to try to track that down. Yeah, so um, another reason I think that they do the dubbing is so that they could cast people regardless of what language they spoke. Because not in this particular film, there's, I think, primarily people that, that speak the native languages. But in other, uh, Dario Argento and... Um, Umberto Lindsay and other, you know, Italian directors, they did tend to cast Americans and people that were, you know, from Italy or France or Spain or whatever. So well, rather I mean, than with well, all the accents, they just dubbed it. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, how you have spaghetti Westerns with, you know, yeah. where they do, you know, they have a mixture of people who speak English and, and Italian and uh, you just kind of have to get along with what you right. do. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, when I first watched this, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, <laughs> I was expecting it to be a lot less straightforward is the wrong word, but like linear than it was because I'd seen other Italian movies and Italian stuff from this this time period, even Giallo, where it was much more, it was more about the atmosphere and the, the, the feeling that you get watching it than it following a real clear plot. So I was kind of happily surprised that this one does have a very clear but, somewhat easy to follow plot it wasn't directed by david lynch is what uh, no no it about. wasn't okay um but if you're if you've never watched a giallo and you're looking for kind of like a reference point somebody who i think is very influenced by them would be uh why am i blanking hold on a second no uh, it would be brian de palma um is who uh, i was thinking yeah like, you know movies like blowout or body double or you know stuff like that especially his stuff in the 80s Sister would be sisters would be another. Yeah, I think he's very influenced by this genre. So even, if you wanna, yeah, even stuff like he did the first Mission Impossible, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, even stuff like that. I mean, think of that. That has almost not in a strong way, but it does have maybe subtle little influences in there as well. Yeah, and I would even say something like so. I think Giallo definitely sprung from like Hitchcock, right? I think Hitchcock yeah. influenced. Giallo films, and then I think Giallo films influenced Hitchcock when he made Frenzy, because I feel like if you've seen Frenzy, there's definitely a lot of common ground between those. But, anyways, I'm talking way too generally. I want to talk about this movie specifically. <laughs> I'm getting sidetracked. I just get very excited about it because I, I like this genre. So one thing I think that this movie really does a great job of is keeping you guessing about who the killer is, even when. You might have suspicions of different people. Like, it's not even so much red herrings as just it does a really good job of concealing the killer's identity to the very yeah, end. Yeah, it does. Because it does give you almost like certain people, but it's like, well, that's too obvious mm-hmm. and stuff. But it doesn't give you a lot of suspects, really. So it almost right. is just like, well, what is the whodunit in this? We really don't like, 
well, this person seems too obvious, but we really don't have... Who else do we have to even suspect? Mm-hmm. We just have this mysterious, mysterious killer person. But it does somehow give you some subtle stuff. I mean, there's even... There's a great uh, misdirect, which I can't sadly reveal, <laughs> which I, I'm assuming was intentional between the inspector and somebody who made me suspect, oh, and near the end, it's like, oh, maybe this was how they're going with it. And with a particular shot of this character, it's like, oh, maybe this is what... The, who the killer is and stuff and it was i'm assuming was a very brilliant way of of misdirecting if of putting almost a false clue in there that i thought was yeah. brilliant um and the, yeah he does with a very small cast of suspects he makes it uh, manages to and maybe frederick brown the writer of the book manages to really create a lot of intrigue without you guessing it's terribly early yeah, but at the same time, when you get to the end and it does reveal who the killer is, you don't feel cheated no. because you're like, well, I guess if I went back and I added up all the clues, it does point this direction. I just didn't see it when it was, I didn't see it coming. So it's like the perfect combo. And that's it's so hard to stick that landing, especially with a film that's older, because a lot of films that are older have been copied numerous times. Right. Yeah. So nice to still be surprised. Yeah. I mean, and the way they were maybe some stuff at the beginning i thought i knew where they were going with it and stuff and i was and i'm glad they didn't necessarily go with that route because i've been kind of thinking something at this point has been quite dumb before but no it's like the ending where they reveal the whodunit and all the 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 how everything happened and stuff it's it's almost it's like a magic trick almost you mm-hmm. reveal it and you're almost like oh of course that's how it happened that's it's like a sherlock holmes thing well that's obvious it's like well once right. it's explained you want to like rewatch it to be like, oh, what did I miss? What could I have seen differently if I'd been thinking about it in this way? The other thing I love about this, well, one of the many, <laughs> is the the cast is made up of not just your main character, his girlfriend, and the you know police plus the suspects, but there's all these other like ancillary characters that they run into that just make it so much richer and they're so unique and so original. I mean. For, for one, okay, let's talk about the pimp who um, <laughs> so long. Stutter, he has to say so long at the end of every sentence, otherwise he'll he'll stutter. And he's he's a great little character that like they didn't even really need to spend time with, but they took this little detour to spend time with him. What have they got you in for? <gasps> Nothing. I was framed. They got it in for, for me so long. They say I'm aiding in the betting prostitution, but I'm innocent. Look at me. Do I uh, look like a pimp? No, no, no. Look me straight between the eyes and tell me. Do I look like a guy who exploits women? Of course. Uh, I got nothing against accepting a little present now and then. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Or the weirdo artist that's painted this. I very- love. I love that weirdo artist. I love that yeah. scene where you see him oh, and stuff. So good. Who told you about me? Oh, uh, nobody. I saw one of your paintings. I liked it. Uh, What was it? Oh, uh, it was, uh, one about a murderer killing a girl. I don't do that crap anymore. I'm going uh, through a mystical period. I only paint mystical scenes. Why? 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 Because I feel mystical, if it's any of your damn business. It almost, I think those characters almost make, keep it from, because there is a comic element to those characters, yeah. even though sometimes they're not maybe the most uh, morally uh, upright people. But it keeps it from being as dark and bleak as it maybe could otherwise. Because if you really took out some of that stuff, because there's funny, genuinely funny moments in the movie, but I think you could, you could very easily... Uh, get very dark with this especially since there is an element of violation and sexual assault and stuff Mm -hmm. in some of these crimes so you get i mean it's already dark already but i think uh these characters really help keep it i hate to say of a more of a fun movie but it keeps us from getting too you getting too overloaded with with stuff and you can kind of enjoy the experience and enjoy the whodunit aspect of it yeah well you it's almost like you need something every so often to puncture the suspense. Otherwise, the suspense just feels like it's building to something that it can, can't possibly live up to. So you need these quick bursts of comedy or distraction to kind of let your guard down, feel comfortable again. And then all of a sudden you're like, 
oh no, here's, you know, here's the killer like coming after someone or here's the killer on the phone like saying creepy stuff and then you start to build it up again. So it almost gives you like multiple rewards for the suspense by breaking it up in that way. And I think one of the things that makes you feel comfortable or comforted is the music, which yeah. is done by Ennio Morricone, who is, again, another phenomenal composer of scores. And the music in this and in other Giallo films I've watched is almost at times like a lullaby. And you mentioned Guillermo del Toro earlier, and it reminded me this time I was watching of Pan's Labyrinth, because if you remember the score for that, it does have mm-hmm. like these lullaby sort of themes woven through and there's even kind of like it sounds like a child's voice at times and I felt like it was the same with this where you have kind of a sing-songy element but it's very soothing well, and it's easily like lulling you into this kind of peaceful dream state. Well it almost is like certain points I think maybe entirely you hear this bit of score with scenes with the uh, with the main character and his girlfriend where they're kind of talking through the mystery and trying to figure out clues and looking at newspaper clippings and looking at this painting that's a critical part of this mystery and um, the murders that are happening and stuff because there's a series of if we didn't mention there's a series of murders of, of women throughout Italy and stuff and that's part of the investigation but anyway doing these scenes where they're in kind of the boyfriend and the girlfriend are talking in their apartment um, there's oh, there's this I can't quite I'm starting to lose the memory of, of how it sounds but it's almost like it's kind of this almost upbeat music it's almost like something you would hear in a romantic comedy mm-hmm. or something this kind of quirky romantic comedy thing I really liked it I mean again it was unexpected kind of like the main theme of Eyes Without a Face it's not really maybe something you would expect to hear but again it does keep things a little bit maybe lighter than you would it kind of keeps things gives you a bit of almost positive energy in this very again if you look at it objectively very dark story <laughs> about the visuals of this movie first of all i think the set design and the set decoration in this is phenomenal and i really wish i could have like every art piece that is shown (laughs) in the apartment and in the gallery and you know at the the weirdo artist man's house like there were just so many fascinating pieces and i should have done more research but i wasn't able to find out like who the artists were that did the various pieces we see. I mean, hopefully somebody has that information. In addition to the art, which I think really sets a great backdrop for the movie, even for the action in a lot of the scenes, I also love the the visuals and the, the camera getting super close up in certain scenes and some of the angles that are chosen. There's one example that comes to mind of it you know somebody screaming and it does a close-up of the person's like mouth and tongue was so like it it kind of stunned me in a way but it also just made it that much more visceral to have it focus that much on like the physical response that somebody is having to being attacked and to being afraid that i don't remember that specifically that shot but i do remember just the way they shot it they were able to without showing very much so the violence of that, I mean, that particular murder, you know, specifically, mm-hmm. and the kind of, again, the kind of sexual violation of it and stuff without being terribly, terribly graphic with it. You could almost look back on it and think you're seeing more than you actually are seeing and stuff. So I think it's very clever of, of not being too graphic, but putting enough information there that you can kind of fill in the gaps. There's something about this movie that, I don't know how much we'll be able to get into because I don't want to give away too much, but I think it works on a very meta level in its exploration of the reactions that art can provoke and something about a movie that's depicting violence in artistic, but you know, somewhat graphic ways also kind of exploring that conversation of like what power art can have over us and how it interacts with our minds and our Mm. memory. Something about that I found really interesting. Yeah, I think... I mean, I didn't think about that when I was watching it, but now you mentioned... Yeah, I mean, it kind of... 
goes into some, I mean, some stuff that's being talked about right now with, as we record this, with stuff like the Dave Chappelle special that's having a lot of controversy around it of, of how art can be really affect us emotionally and mentally, which, I mean, should be an obvious thing, but to the point where, I mean, you know, even if it's an, an unintentional thing or if it's a piece of art that might be a bit graphic or if it's something that maybe is not being as resp- a piece of artwork, whether it be our actual art or a work of fiction or whatever, that is not being as responsible as it should be, it can really have an effect on us and trigger people, trigger people in a good way, not in the hmm. bullcrap way people like to use that word sometimes, but really trigger people mentally and really do some horrific things with them and bring back horrible traumatic things that can really affect them. And yeah, and I think that kind of shows the power of art and why it's maybe it's important to use it properly and sometimes be careful about what art we're reviewing because it can be dangerous to ourselves too yeah i just you know it seemed like it was a very almost like Mm self-reflective kind of way of of looking at it and you know i mean giallo is one of those genres like horror but you know it's a subgenre of horror where there's some people who are like oh i don't understand why you would watch that like you must be really twisted (laughs) to enjoy that kind of thing and, you know, it, it started out, like you mentioned, with, like, pulp novels. Like, giallo actually just means yellow, and it's because of the color paper that pulp novels in Italy were printed on that they became known as giallo novels, and then giallo films, you know, were a- adapted from them. So the same way that there's sort of like a, a snobbery, I guess, around the type of, of fiction or the type of art that you that you consume and you find enjoyable. I think that conversation has been going on for a really long time, but this movie kind of shows how you can kind of have it both ways, right? You can have this somewhat like perverse um, depiction and there's, there's these kind of graphic little splatters of fake blood and things like that throughout the movie, but it's also kind of getting at something deeper and examining what our, our psyche looks like. And I think that's what, I love about horror is that it's able to explore these these darker territories in a a way that I wouldn't do if I were just watching like a straightforward movie about all happy subjects all the time. I don't remember quite who it was from, but I think it was rather one of the direct. I think it was directors of one of these movies or something where somebody talked about how something. I'm going to get the context kind of wrong, but maybe how they wouldn't want necessarily see kind of a horror movie deal with these types of subjects and stuff. And they were of the opinion, whoever said this, of the opinion that it would help elevate, I mean, elevate's a bad word, but basically show how much horror can actually do and how you should take horror seriously as a thing. And not just as a kind of, you know, lower art, quote-unquote, type thing, but how horror can really tell us very serious and... Um, important messages, which is shown in a lot of stuff from, again, like people like Guillermo del Toro and a lot of other people. The power of horror films goes beyond just graphic images or scary scenes that stay with us or exorcist heads that go around, you know, circular or whatever. It, it really can tell a lot of great messages. And like we've talked about with this one, uh, even though, there, again, there's elements of mystery and thriller with this too, there's definitely elements of horror that can help tell some very important things about us you know psychologically and about again about art yeah and i think there's a reason why these types of films are perennially loved by a certain group of people and you know that goes back decades and decades and generations and generations like these types of films there's always going to be a place for them because we need an outlet we need a way to explore those darker things in our lives and in our culture and you know, art is a way to do that. But there's also a great conversation that, like you said, we're currently having about making sure that artists are still taking responsibility and accountability for the way that their art is being received. And, you know, I absolutely would not hold it against anyone who says, look, I'm not up for watching this kind of movie because it makes me feel certain things and, Mm -hmm. you know, brings back either real life memories or real life fears. Like I completely get that. I think that's completely valid. No. And it kind of goes back to, and it's partially, you know, the responsibility thing, it partially goes back to again, how you're depicting it. We talked about uh, last year with, when we were talking about David Lynch and talking about blue velvet, there's some really graphic sexual things in that and, you know, abusive things in that movie but it's obviously done from a point of view of this is wrong, this is horrible, and mm. stuff. And this movie's the same thing where you're seeing these very graphic things, but it's obviously from a point of view of somebody who is not trying to glorify these things or get some sort of sexual titillation out of them. It's from a point of view of this is a horrible, terrible 
thing, and not everybody's going to want to see that, but it's at least done in a responsible way of, yes, we know this is wrong, you know, if you've had an experience maybe like this that's been very traumatic, we agree with you, it's traumatic, we support you, and all that stuff. It's done with some empathy and some care and some love in the best cases of these things being um, uh, shown on screen. And to the extent that this movie does show violence against women. I also find that there are parts of it that I found, found pretty empowering as well. So I do think that's important because there are movies out there that some I've seen, some that I haven't that do feel like they're more on the prurient side of just let's show a bunch of bad stuff happening to women. And I don't think that is necessarily a great form of entertainment. Certainly it isn't entertaining to me, but for this movie, I feel like there's something being explored and worked out on screen. And I also, again, feel like the note that it ends on is one where I feel like it's it's not just exploitative, but it's empowering. Back to our top, the kind of topic we've kind of strung through this. Would you, again, I think we're going to continue to be, uh, maybe <laughs> disagree on the subject, but I thought this, again, more as a kind of mystery thriller with horror aspects to it, but did you find, I mean, uh, find it more horror than thriller, or how did you feel about that? Because, like, especially since those genres can kind of very easily kind of get kind of meshed together and confused with each other and drunk. This one is, to me, a little less clear-cut than Eyes Without a Face. To me, this is right on that borderline between a suspense slash thriller movie and something I would call straight up horror. But I do think the fact that there are these sort of giallo tropes, like the, the black gloves and the, you know, very specific, like costumes, the wrong word, but like, you know, there's certain sort of hallmarks of that genre in here. I think the atmosphere is there, but I do think this one is less straightforward horror. And therefore I think I would recommend it to people who are like, Oh, I'm not really a horror fan. But I, I don't mind, you know, a murder mystery or something like that. I think this is more palatable for somebody who's not really a big horror person. And if you have seen this and you like it and you're kind of curious about other Giallo films and you want to kind of dip your toes in the water but not go full on yet, I would say Blood and Black Lace is a good one to watch. And that one has some other like murder mystery elements, but it does get a little bit more into the, I would say, into the like, mm, not campier, but more over-the-top, shall we say, elements of Giallo. So that's a good one to go to next if you haven't seen it. Okay, so uh, before we wrap up, we're going to talk about some new releases or some upcoming releases from uh, some of these labels. As, as most of the time, uh, we're starting with Criterion. Some new releases are going to be coming out in January. One is a Dogma 95, uh, The Celebration, which I believe is the first Dogma 95 film, which people who don't know that, it's a very interesting kind of film movement that I believe has ended now, but was going for, I don't know how many years, but for a while. I can't remember, but it had very specific rules of how filmmakers were supposed to make their films. I will leave you to kind of look up those uh, rules and stuff, but it is interesting. I have, I think the only Dogma 95 film I have seen in entirety is The Celebration, which again, I believe was the first one. And um, I saw that in a film class back in college, and that was interesting. And that's coming out on January, on January 11th. January 18th is a movie called Time. And then uh, in January 18th, they're re-releasing uh, Hard Day's Night, the famous Beatles film, in 4K. There's already a DVD and Blu-ray of that. And then uh, January 25th, there is uh, Dick Johnson is Dead, which I believe is a kind of a, I think somebody described it as almost a mystical or psychedelic or whatever documentary type thing about, well, the title person, Dick Johnson, dealing with, all, uh, I think, dementia, specifically. Yeah. And then The Piano by Jane, J- Jane Campion, which is coming out also uh, January 25th. And then one thing from Flickr Alley that I found interesting was something called Cinema of Discovery. Oh, God, I'm going to totally, I should have practiced this name before. I, um, Duvivier? John, what was it? Julian Duvivier? Yes, okay. Okay, so I'm going to go with Rosalie's pronunciation. I'm assuming that is correct. Um, it's a series of, I think, nine films that he did in the, I think, totally in the 20s. I'm just going to read the little Flickr Alley description real quick. Um, one of the most pro- prolific and technically proficient filmmakers in cinema history, Julian, that last name, was idolized by the likes of directors John Wenoir. Uh, Ing- Ingmar Bergman and Orson Welles. His expressive use of the camera was primarily created under the influence under the influence of poetic 
realist style. In fact, he did much to establish the technical and aesthetic standards of French poetic realism, which won him international acclaim. For a time, he was among cinema's most celebrated directors, receiving nominations and top prizes at notable international film competitions. And again, there's a list of uh, nine films that he did. Um, I think very interesting, um, and I will probably check that out at some point. For fans of The Little Rascals, I believe I mentioned one of the volumes of this in some past episode, but uh, Classic Fix, um, which is a label we don't talk much about, but I do own some stuff from, and that's Classic Fix, Classic, then F-I-L, sorry, F-L-I-X. They're doing, I know in the past few months or the past year or so, they've been releasing Little Rascal uh, collections. I believe they're on volume four, which is coming out, I believe, on January 18th. So, Fans of Little Rascals, there's at least four volumes you can check out come the new year. And then this some uh, handful of things from a Warner Archive that is out or going to be out soon. Um, there's a Tex Avery Screwball Comedy Volume 3, and there is, I believe they recently did, I think it's a new version of A Night of the Opera, which is on Blu-ray, the famous Marx Brothers film. And then um, I think I've been keeping up with these. They've also released um, Shadow of the Thin Man from 1941 on Blu-ray with William Power and Martin Loy. All right. And on my docket, uh, there's a number of things that are coming out that I am super excited about. I do want to double down on Dick Johnson is Dead. That was, if not my favorite movie, um, one of my favorite movies of that year. So fantastic documentary that explores a, a difficult topic in i would say the most fun way possible while still giving it the proper treatment so really fantastic but that aside um i also am looking forward to a movie called savage sisters that's going to be released by kino lorber and it's coming out on blu-ray um this is from 1974 and stars among other people the dearly departed sid haig and I'll just read the, the plot description here. A local corrupt general plans on smuggling a million U.S. dollars out of the banana republic he dominates. Local revolutionaries plan on stealing the cash, but are thwarted when a bandit leader they are working with double-crosses them. A tough cop and her boyfriend help two of the female revolutionaries escape from prison, and it goes on from there. So this one definitely looks like fun to me, a good 70s kind of exploitation film, and I'm always down for those. So that one is coming from Kino Lorber. Also, Kino Lorber, we have the newly announced film noir, The Dark Side of Cinema. This is volume five, and it spans 1952 to 1957. And I've actually not seen any of these three films. So it's Because of You, Outside the Law, and The Midnight Story. So I'm definitely excited to pick those up because I'm always looking for new film noir to add to my collection. And then uh, finally, I will mention from... Vinegar Syndrome, they have announced that they'll be releasing Knife and Heart, which we just talked about a giallo, and this is a modern giallo. Um, and I, I loved this when I saw it a couple years ago on streaming. This was shot in 35 millimeter, and it has a really great score um, from M83. And it's just a really cool kind of tribute to the Argentos and the De Palmas of the world, and uh, really worth seeing. So that one is coming out. I didn't catch the date, but it is going to be coming out from Vinegar Syndrome. So I'm very excited about that. So, but the schedule for the next few months, next month in November, we are going to have our second year anniversary. And for that, uh, we are going to uh, talk about Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And uh, that was the uh, Twin Peaks movie that came out, which has been released by Criterion, that came out between the original two seasons of the show and the uh, Twin Peaks: The Return that came out in the past few years. We will talk a little about a little bit about the, sh- the two seasons that came before it, unless something changes. We won't be talking about the Twin Peaks: The Return at all, I don't think. Um, but maybe at some point we'll find a way to talk about The Return. I don't know. And then in December, um, for the holidays, we're going to discuss two fun movies, uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 and Flying Down to Rio. And then to kind of rein in the new year, um, we're going to talk about a, a, a filmmaker who I'm getting more excited about as time goes on, Ozu, who is a uh, Japanese filmmaker who uh, we covered one of his films very early on in, ooh, I think it was the third episode we did about childhood, uh, his film Good Morning, which is one of his later films. Ozu has had a lot of his films released through Criterion. Um, I don't know how many, but a lot. Um, I have no idea. We haven't discussed at all what films of his we're going to 
um, take a look at, but we'll f figure that out maybe by next month or something. We'll have a better idea of what films of his we're going to cover. But there's a lot to choose from, but I'm very excited to uh, start the year off um, with him. But until next time, though, um, do uh, check out our parent company 25 years later at its Twitter account, 25YL site, and its website, 25yearslatersite.com, or my Twitter account at CinemaPackRat, where you can find links to uh, my YouTube channel, which should hopefully have some Halloween type videos soon ish, or by the time this is released. And you can check out my Twitter at Rosalie Lewis. So stay tuned uh, for next month. We'll talk about some uh, David Lynch works again and get into some weird, weird stuff, I am sure. But looking forward to doing that and celebrating the second anniversary of the show. But until uh, then, we will catch you guys later. Mm -hmm.